This is the Ignition Point, Clayton Bradley Academy's podcast, where every day we work to help students excel through critical thinking, problem solving, collaboration, and use of our lifelong guidelines and life skills. Over the next couple podcasts, we're going to be interviewing Karen Olson. Karen Olson has been part of the model of instruction that we do at Clayton Bradley for several years and has written a couple books about this model. And so at this time, we join the podcast with Karen Olson. We'd like to welcome to the podcast today, Karen Olson. Karen is connected to our school through the model of instruction that we use that um, is taking on a new name. So we have called it Highly Effective Teaching. And uh, as we transition into next year, we're going to be transitioning to the new name of the model. And so I'll let Karen introduce all that as she introduces herself. So welcome to the podcast, Karen. Well, thank you. So I've uh, been an educator for 40 years, and I began in a one-room schoolhouse, which is a little bit like uh, talking about starting with horse and buggy, <laughs> and finally coming to the realization that um, that uh, brain research and neuroscience has a great deal to um, tell us. And um, we've been working with that for uh, 35 years, and it's uh, your school. Clayton Bradley Academy is one of the best examples of use of what we know from brain research to educate kids that we have ever seen. And so we're thrilled and delighted to um, continue working with them. And, um, and so that brings me here. Yeah. And so one of the big things that you have done now, you've also been to the school campus and toured around. We'd love to have you back, by the way. But um, one of the things that you've been instrumental with is the book that describes the model. And so the original book, Exceeding Expectations, that you wrote with Susan Kavalik. Um, I don't know who else was on that team, but I think your, t- your two names are the only ones on the, the cover. Um, and now you are yes. rewriting that book. And so as you're rewriting that book, you've got a new team. I'm also on that team with you and, and have had a, a blast uh, going through this process. Um, but you've been instrumental in updating the book, updating the model, and uh, in that process, we're we're changing the name again, and it's had a couple different names in the in the past. So, uh, go ahead and describe the kind of what went into the new name that we're calling the model that we use here, and then we'll start talking about the book. Yes, we went through um, highly effective teaching and moved to the name of the learning uh, centered school. Uh, because the focus needs to be on what teachers can orchestrate to have happen with kids rather than just to focus on what they do to teach. And I think that's the right one. And we have um, so much information from brain research that can help us do that really well. And in fact, um, the uh, I tried putting myself in the position of a parent at your school and what kinds of things, uh, questions would I have? And one of them is, uh, for some, it seems a little scary to find out that your school is using neuroscience with your with your child. <laughs> um, and uh, but you need to know it's it's not a fad. The the major premises uh, from uh, brain research that your school is using um, are not fads. Uh, some of the research started a hundred years ago. Um, nothing is newer than a quarter of a century old and everything in between and since confirms the basic premises that your school is using and And everybody talks about um, brain research differently Um, 
just yesterday I picked up National Geographic's uh, latest issue on memory. And it's a good example of good information that's talked about differently. Um, but that's okay, because each audience that reads about um, neuroscience and what tells us about how the human brain learns, each audience uh, is, is different, um, has a different role. What parents, um, what would be pertinent to you is different from what teachers need in their role. Um, obviously, the two things uh, overlap, but the way they're talked about um, uh, differs. So, and, and the, um, what I like about the principles that your school is using is that you've experienced them. When you sit down and start going through them, you say, well, that sounds like my kid at age two, or that sounds like my <laughs> child at, at another point. Uh, so it's not, uh, when you read it, it'll sound like common sense and, uh, oh boy, for sure. And why did it take neuroscientists so long to get around to this information? And I think that's one of the the interesting things. The more that I've gotten into the model, too, is how much of what we talk about with our teachers, what we talk about with our parents, when, you, when you're in that discussion and you're in that training, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense because you start connecting it to times that you have learned things. And, and you know, now we actually have the ability to see a brain learn something. And so we, we talk about that in the new book of what part of the brain is being activated when someone is encountering something for the very first time and then kind of where it goes next as it starts to really understand and learn it and then where does it go again as learning continues until eventually the goal being that you put it into long-term memory and i think that it's it's that common sense side that catches me off guard sometimes because you know you're sometimes you're reading it and you're thinking oh i'm going to find out something new that i didn't know you know and instead what you find out is <laughs> Science is just backing up what what you you know if you've ever learned something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so what you've just described about the, the four brain shifts the brain goes through when it encounters something new until it gets to not only understand, to recognize it, understand it, and figure out how to use it and practice using it until it finally gets into long-term memory. Um, if you use the... Um, the analogy of a, of a young child, you can see those functions really easily. So before speech, your infant sits on your lap and just stares. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> you think they haven't blinked in the last hour and they are picking up visual images and trying to fit together what that means. Uh, and when they, uh, months later, when they acquire language, then they're able to ask questions expand the image they have in their head, check to see if it's accurate. Uh, and as they go back and forth, the image gets um, richer and, uh, and more accurate and more complete. And, uh, and the vocabulary comes with it so the, the child can talk about it. And then they start to do it. And we've uh, seen kids, um, children practice something over and over and over again until you think, oh my goodness, my child has got ACD here. And it's, they're just practicing and practicing and they're making me crazy just watching. And all of a sudden they'll jump up and run off and you never see them do that activity again. <laughs> in, their, in their head, they've gotten feedback that they have finally mastered that. It's in long-term memory. 
and they don't need to fuss with it any longer and they're off to learn something new. So it's that progression that absolutely we have seen and, uh, and it's not a surprise, but neuroscience has a way of talking about it that gives teachers uh, finger holes on how to use that and how to practice it in the classroom as they're teaching uh, curriculum standards. And I think this leads into the discussion that I, you know, was wanting to have with you on the book Centerpiece. And, and this is how I describe it. Now, you, you've been in, involved in writing the book, uh, and so you might say your centerpiece is different. It'll be interesting to see if you agree here. Uh, but I think the centerpiece <laughs> of the book is this understanding how the brain learns, especially that encountering something new. Um, and I think as adults, yeah. we... As adults, we don't encounter something new very often. You know, by the time you're an adult, you, you've had a lot of experiences. And so sometimes when we're thinking about education, we think of it through an adult lens. And I think that's how education sometimes gets messed up is because we're thinking about education through an adult lens and we're not thinking about it through a child's lens of this could be the very first time they're encountering that. You know, we, we kind of... We do multiplication now, you know, as an adult, you may or may not be quick with multiplication. You may go to a calculator or whatever, but you do multiplication. You've been doing multiplication, but it's hard to remember what it was like when you were in elementary school and you were encountering multiplication for the first time and how your brain had to process it and figure it out. And I think sometimes then that causes us to set up education, maybe in in a different light because we're not thinking about that learning being something brand new. We're going at it through our own lens instead of the lens of the kid. And so when you talk about this in the book and, and uh, you lay it out as the four phases of learning, um, you help, in my opinion, a teacher reading this or a parent reading this, start to get this idea of, of when you're teaching something in the classroom, especially if you know it's new to the kid, how do you need to lay that out? And as you described, the brain wants to see it. It wants that image of how does this fit in the real world or how does this, how, you know, why does this matter? You know, as kids get older, they, they, they'll ask that question, like, why do I ever need to learn? And then, you know, they fill in the blank. And so that very first challenge for the teacher is help them see the image of it in the real world. The, the, where, where does this exist? Yes, and the, and the key piece here is that the brain uh, thinks in images, not in words, un- unless it was a highly emotional uh, event, and then you remember every word. <laughs> and if you were criticized roundly for something, you probably have that speech on a short loop that pulls up pretty frequently on you. But uh, other than that, just regular run-of-the-mill life passing by and learning, um, we our brain works in images and that's uh, that's good because the brain can process an image 60,000 times faster than it can process words wow so and we have a saying uh, a picture is worth a thousand words <laughs> well yes so let's deal in images so building that image rather than starting with vocabulary which is um, a criticism of traditional education that i think is rightly earned Instead of starting with a vocabulary list, which I can remember dearly hating in high school, <laughs> we had 20 words a, a week and they just kept pounding us. Um, but if we hadn't had the experience behind it, the words were 
they were just words. Uh, but if something resonated with an experience we had and we said, ooh, that's the exact word that describes how I felt then or what was going on at the time, we had the image first, the vocabulary slides in effortlessly. And when we think in the future, we're, we're dealing with images. And uh, so it's important to, uh, and affects uh, as teachers to slow down uh, and do that first step solidly and make sure that the first step and the, and the second one, picking up language for it, is that we do it and make the brain go back and forth, back and forth in that because the, that, that um, communication back and forth, back and forth, builds those connections and improves uh, comprehension for the rest of uh, the rest of our lives. And I think, you know, another example of that one is is the power of activating the senses. And so if you're going to activate a sen- the senses and emotion and feeling, you do that. Now, not to say you can't do that through words. I think we've all read something that, man, it, it really activated some emotions and feelings. But we want to activate the yes. senses with with our kids. And, and you know, how, how often have you walked into a room and smelled, you know, the whatever that room smells like, and you're instantly taken back to some memory of your childhood or, you know, it's like my, there was a person that walked by my son the other day and he came over to me and he said, that person must wear the same cologne as Jay Paul, uh, my dad. That's who he calls. That's what he calls him. He said, I think they were like, he walked by and I immediately thought about Jay Paul and, you know, because it's, it's what triggers like those things trigger and they have a powerful trigger in our brain when you're using senses. So that's part of our model of we want kids to go and being their experiences at the beginning of their learning. We want, you know, we, we want them to go and see it and smell it and uh, taste it if it's possible, hear it, you know, activating those senses that we know also that, you know, we talk about five senses, but the but science has identified that the body works on well more than five senses of how it encounters the world and how it encounters other humans, how it encounters uh, just anything that it's it's coming across. Sometimes we don't even perceive, but your brain is perceiving them and it's marking that experience in your brain. And then you wonder, why did I just think of that? And it's like, well, something was triggered in there to pull back one of those memories that, that you had maybe when you were a child. Yeah, what you're describing here is, is really the key. And another way, let's back up and ask the broader question. So how does information get into the brain? Uh, Clearly, the brain is not a box that you can stuff uh, curriculum standards into and then slap the lid down and buckle (laughs) it tight. So uh, the way information gets into the the brain and inside the body, because the body is an inseparable partner uh, with the brain in the learning process, how does information get inside? And it's by uh, sensory information coming in, touch, taste, smell, the things you've mentioned. Others include a proximal sense. We're walking along and all of a sudden we know someone is staring at us <laughs> behind <laughs> us and we whip around and look and sure enough, someone's, you know, a friend has been sneaking up on us to try to um, surprise us. Uh, there are many, um, many systems um, that bring in external information, and also we process in, uh, internal information. So, for example, when COVID came along, um, some of us said, oh, man, I, I really don't feel good at all right now, and, I, and I've never had a set of symptoms like this before. 
And what the body does is uh, look for pattern. So I felt like this before, I felt like that before, but I haven't had this, 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 and this together before. So it's something new. Sound comes in and we, we search through it for pattern. Vision, we look for patterns. So the whole um, uh, um, brain-body learning system is reading uh, changes in pattern and, uh, and, and making sense of it um, for us. So that's how information gets in is, is by sensory input. And it's the, the stronger, uh, the richer the, the sensory input, the more likely something will be um, kept in the brain, stored in the brain and for access later on. If something comes in solely by reading and we're reading about something that we've never had any experience with before, that kind of information is really tough for a child to um, try to put in the brain and, and encode in the brain in a way that's easily um, retrieved. But if it floats in with a lot of sensory um, input, it those sensory systems activate chemistry in the brain. And that chemistry, which includes uh, uh, neurotransmitters, uh, peptides, which are produced um, and uh, and read by the brain, hormones, all of that uh, swimming around through the system <laughs> comes to neurons. So in addition to the information the brain receives through the synaptic jump from axon to dendrites, um, we also have a second parallel, completely chemical system that is reading information that comes in as well. So sensory input is absolutely critical, which is why your school uh, spends so much time investing in uh, in field studies, uh, even if they're on campus, go where the it is yeah. <laughs> so they can see what it is, how it works, why it's important, uh, and that's what they can encode in, in a single session, where if they just tried reading a book, it would take forever, and the effect the lingering effect for retrieval would nowhere be the same. And I think most people listening, you know, some of what they would say to that is, is they probably had a similar experience as I did. I, I grew up Southern West Virginia and, you know, we read a lot of books in school that, as you said, I had no connection with, you know, I, I didn't, I, I didn't have a pattern for a large city. I didn't have a pattern for, um, interstate travel necessarily i mean my, we would go on some trips but but you know i think about like my kids now you know it's not uncommon for us to get on the interstate when we're just going on a 30 minute you know trip down the road uh, when i was growing up if we were on the interstate you know mm-hmm. we were making a, a much larger uh, trip of it and so you know when you're reading some stories that that might bring up that kind of imagery you have a hard time really putting it into context because you don't have a pattern there. You may have heard of something or seen a picture, but you don't really have a good pattern. Whereas um, I remember it was middle school. uh, We read Where the Red Fern Grows, and all of a sudden there was a lot more uh, pattern because now we were in in areas like what I was growing, what I grew up in, you know, and and there's talk in there uh, of chewing tobacco, and, and I had, you know, I had family members and and friends and stuff that that I knew what that smelled like. I knew what that that looked like. Uh, you know, there was hunting in there. There was, 
you know, those kind of things. Old Yeller, also a story that, that I connected with really well because there were it was dealing on patterns that I knew and I recognized. And so as I'm reading it, I, I'm getting those senses activated of I'm, I know the smell or I know what it's like going through the woods uh, hunting or I know what it's like trying to find your dog that's barking somewhere and, and you're trying to track it down. Um, and so that those books then stick out to me. I mean, I'm still talking about them today, right? So that learning happened a whole lot faster and, and accelerated more and, and stuck more into long-term memory because I was associating with stuff I knew as opposed to reading a story that, you know, I, I'm trying to make up the pattern in my head because I really don't have a clue uh, what that pattern uh, may be. Um, and yes. I might get it wrong then. And what you're, <laughs> and what you're describing is uh, experiences that, uh, I'll use the, the metaphor of a post office box, when you experience something, uh, it it records in in codes in the brain, and and the next thing that you do, and in your example, read a book, um, that and you had those experiences as a child. You had a dog that got lost. You uh, you had family members that you know chewed tobacco and so on. Those post office boxes in the brain were a place that your brain could immediately take the new information and add it to that rather than starting from scratch and having to figure out, you know, what in the world is chewing tobacco? I thought people smoked it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, how can your dog get lost that you have to keep it on a leash? Right. (laughs) And then then there's a lot of the story that I'm trying to be following. And pretty soon the child just says, ah, (laughs) and gives it up. So it's the experiences through that's the sensory experiences that encode in the brain that give a foothold or a post office box for new learning to come into. And it reduces the amount of chatter the brain has to to work with in order for the new stuff to come in. It has somewhere to go and, and a way to be processed. And I think that's the the important part of that first phase of learning. And it's why we want to do those being there experiences and stuff is so that everybody in the room has at least a place to start because some people in the room would have a place to start without the being there. But there are other people in the room that maybe wouldn't have that place to start. You know, maybe they've never been, you know, to an area that would be described in in what we're getting ready to learn. And so you want to do a being there, either bringing in a guest speaker, bringing in real artifacts um, into the classroom, going there if you, you know, is is great. a shared experience it might be that you know sometimes the only thing you can do is maybe a virtual thing and so trying to do that if you have to we know that that's not the first go-to but it it is a an experience that we can go through if we need to Um, and it's so important then to to kind of set that so at least everybody has some experience some people in the room are still going to have more experience to choose to pull from but at least everybody has a, a beginning point a pattern to to start to put stuff with this has been the ignition point Clayton Bradley Academy's podcast where every day we work to help students excel through critical thinking, problem solving, collaboration, and use of our lifelong guidelines and life skills. If you'd like to find out more about the school, you can visit us on our webpage, www.claytonbradleyacademy.org, or find us on social media sites at CBA STEM or at Clayton Bradley Academy. We hope you have a wonderful day.